0: So, then, afterwards... You ha- I'm not necessarily going to include any of this in the podcast, I'm just... Uh, what,
1: what the fuck are you talking about,
0: James? I'm, cl- I'm just clueless as to how to start this po- Welcome to Private Practice Podcast from London, England. But who are you? I'm Daniel P. Brown, with a mouthful James- of banana. I'm James Hall, and I'm in Paris, France. And do you have a mouthful of banana? No, because... I am superior to you in every way, but obviously no-one refers to Paris as Paris France other than Americans, just to clarify.
1: And no-one really refers to London as London England other than Americans.
0: And this week our subject is because normally we wait about fifteen minutes before announcing the subject is trauma.
1: Private Practice Podcast. So,
0: this week, the subject is trauma. Yep, this week, the subject
1: is trauma, after our episode last week on hysteria. I'm eating now, why
0: did you... <laughs> <laughs> this week, we're going to talk about trauma, and I'm not going to read out a whole load of things that I've read, because I, I don't know if there is uh, one of the books in the series of ideas and psychoanalysis on trauma, but... If I don't know if there is. I don't have it. I haven't read it. So I'm going to be bringing the experience of the life of James Hall to this podcast as my contribution to the subject of trauma. And fortunately, it's not just the James Hall show, because we are in the divine company of the omniscience of Dr. Professor... What is your actual title? I'm just a
1: nurse, James. Nurse Daniel... P Brown. Actually, my title is
0: um, the lead nurse for parity of esteem and mental health training. But one of your specialist subjects, if this were to be mastermind, is trauma. So I am am setting myself, I'm setting unrealistic expectations of genius coming from you, which you couldn't possibly meet because they're so high, so you will only let me down over... (laughs) okay good we've
1: had we've had a few digs we've you're starting to make me feel you know just just just
0: mildly irritated so um i also think it's quite good when you are mildly irritated and there is a little bit of combat between Mm, us mm. the competition for me to actually
1: prove i know anything about the topic that you're setting me up to fail on (laughs) Do, do you want to start so, by giving, by giving, imparting some of your divine wisdom. Well, listen, I, I, I what I've been enjoying doing or or, or, or enjoying uh, trying to do is to bring it back to the listener. So w- obviously we have a podcast here that I want to be accessible and useful and obviously potentially entertaining at the same time. You You bring the entertainment, James, and perhaps I bring the useful. That's the way I like to look at it. So what we're talking about with trauma is a set of experiences, feelings... Sometimes beliefs and behaviors um, related to something really awful that has happened to the individual. So, in relating that to the listener, we have to again just point out that there is the very extreme end of trauma, which I think, I think, you know, most famously and probably most media um aware would be the kind of the ptsd that a soldier might suffer in a battle zone um post-traumatic stress disorder that's like an extreme end um
0: of the the trauma spectrum Um, can i suggest the other extreme being waitrose has run out of quinoa you can suggest that but i wouldn't suggest that that was a trauma Um, but seriously, though, what would be the other end because this this is what I was going to ask you, um and you've got straight to the thing that I was going to ask you, um which is what at the other at the more, at the mildest extreme still counts as trauma, and what when do we stop referring to trauma, and we start just realizing that it's a joke that waitress doesn't have quinoa, and that's really not trauma.
1: Okay, so that's a very good question. And I think if you ask different specialists and experts in the field, they'd have different answers. I think for the listener and for the everyday person, my guess would be something like the breakup of a relationship and the loss would be, you know, and then there's a judgment on this, a less extreme end of trauma. So it's about the way someone reacts to something difficult happening in their life. So there's also that phrase, uh, everything is relative. um, Or or there's a... For you in your life, there's a normal range, and sometimes that range expands with what we've experienced. So for someone who has never experienced um, child abuse or being kidnapped or being in a military war zone or uh, on a sinking ship, ship or almost drowning or watching someone being murdered or, um, uh, or being in an earthquake or a flood or a natural disaster, if you've never experienced any of that and you've had a relatively pleasant, relatively safe, relatively easygoing life... And then you lose a parent, quite suddenly. That could definitely be a trauma. But would you then? That's what I mean. It's relative. Would you then say that the person that's been in a war zone and has seen as their their best buddy in in their in their uh, in their military company gets shot next to them or or bleeds to death? Would you say then that the trauma is it you know is worse or is more extreme? Trauma is about the way it affects you. So actually, the 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 triggering event itself or the tr- set of events that trigger what will then be described as trauma, which is generally a set of internal thinking processes which relates to uh, thoughts, feelings, beliefs, and then behaviours. That's The trauma comes after the event. So the event that is traumatic might be different. You, potentially for some children, and, and I don't know that this is definitely the case, Like a, the loss of a pet could be incredibly traumatic because it might be the thing that brings about their understanding of loss and death and grief. So actually it's traumatic but is that the same as watching someone murdered in front of you or almost drowning and you know it, it's so so although usually we're talking about normal range there's there's then real judgment on what is traumatic and how severe that is.
0: But also presumably it doesn't <clears throat> really matter because the important thing is it, it's just a, it's just for the individual because if you Suffer from trauma, a thing has happened, and you react to it and someone else 's trauma has nothing to do with that so you 're not it 's not a shared experience. your reaction is not dependent on the extre- extremity of someone else 's trauma you don 't have um, a setting of trauma related to someone else it's not it 's not a shared thing where some kind of scale is established so that people can understand where they are on that scale in relation to other people. It's your own trauma. So if you then shift everything up that scale, someone who has a really painful breakup from a relationship could have just as extreme a reaction to that as someone who has been in a war and watched their best friend having all their legs... however, <laughs> Watching their centipedal best friend having all their legs chopped <laughs> <laughs> Both of their legs chopped off and then their head chopped off, that would be if if the if one person initially sees their friend being chopped up <laughs> sorry it's because I use the word all to describe legs. What I'm saying is that you don't have to have had the most extreme stimulus of trauma to have the most extreme output because it's all relative to you and someone else's more extreme version doesn't affect you, has nothing to do with you. OK, Yes. Yeah, so I guess trauma is something that perhaps then starts
1: halfway up the scale of distress and discomfort. It's not something where you can have... A, you can't have a trauma uh, relating to something so insignificant that there isn't a sense or a, a great sense of fear or loss or danger. So let me explain that by giving you... So so there's obviously a clinical... When we're talking, when we're talking to the listener, we're talking to you, we're, we're, we're trying to help you see whether trauma is something you relate to and no
0: doubt it'll be something you can relate to in your life somehow but it might not be something you've experienced. Not Or it's unlikely that the listener <clears throat> has been in a war zone, it's unlikely that the listener has seen someone deca- decapitated or something, The most whatever is the most horrific thing in your imagination, it's unlikely that you've seen that. I was going to explain when it becomes
1: a clinical trauma and when perhaps the post-traumatic stress disorder the ptsd which we hear spoken about becomes a clinical issue but because we're talking about two two different things here when we're talking on this podcast we're always talking about the uh the uh, the continuum really from where something does not become a mental health issue or does not become a a problem with which we have to overcome it's a it's a it's a life event that we manage and deal with our brain copes with our our um support network help us with but a clinical problem becomes a clinical problem in terms of trauma whereby the normal process of reacting to something distressing which would be something like this you are in a car accident nobody dies nothing went particularly awfully wrong but the car crashed you crashed into a wall. The wall broke. It happened very quickly. You might not have been paying attention. And afterwards, what happens? You go to the hospital. You've maybe got a broken arm. What happens afterwards is perhaps that you don't want to get in the car for a few weeks. You've, you've, your heart races and you feel very nervous about the thought of travel. You keep seeing little flashes of what happened just before you hit the wall. Um, you feel scared. You feel worried. You, you're not sure that you're ever going to be able to get in a car again. Now, that's normal. That 's a normal reaction to uh, to danger to fear to a distressing event, and that is quite a distressing event, but no one died there wasn 't actually enough time for you to think that you were going to die, but afterwards you have thoughts about well what if I died? what if the car had been going a bit faster what if that other what if the wall hadn't been there and stopped us what if there'd been a person there now that that kind of process can go on for a couple of months um, an actually normal reaction to dangerous uh uh, difficult, distressing life events can go on for a couple of months. There is, and, I, and perhaps this this changes, I, I think I think there's a cut-off that after maybe six months, if the images are still coming back to you, if those feelings associated with, if the fears, if the behaviours to avoid being in that situation again still going on, that's considered post-traumatic stress disorder. Now, again, the, the actual event itself would have to be something that was quite severe for it to be considered post-traumatic stress disorder. If not, it might be considered some kind of um, inability to adjust or a kind of a depression or an anxiety disorder. But for PTSD, the event has to be considered, or at least in a lot of the definitions of it, has to be considered something where you felt your life was at risk. So not everyone experiences trauma. Do you see?
0: Okay, but um, one aspect of trauma that I've been researching recently is much milder than something truly horrific involving war, death, real danger to human life, but was not as stupid and flippant (coughs) as um, something being unavailable in the supermarket. So this isn't just one particular thing, this is just the ideas of our childhood influences that last well into adulthood and our daily problems that maybe cause us unhappiness, our patterns of behaviour that can lead to depressive uh, symptoms actually being directly related to things from childhood. And we don't recognise that. We tend to just wallpaper over the cracks. And um, I was particularly irritated by an interview I was listening to yesterday with John Ronson by Russell Brand. Um, he, John Ronson was talking about his depression that he's suffered over the past year and said that he went to see a a Freudian therapist and he said it was the worst thing I could have possibly done because this guy was asking me questions about my childhood and I thought, oh, this is wasting my time, I don't want to go into all that now, I've got a problem and I just want to solve it. And so I left him and I went to another therapist and we did some cognitive behavioural therapy and it really worked and it was great and it's the best decision I've ever made. He said, I'm paraphrasing, but he said something along those lines. And I thought, well, that just sounds... I don't know anything about the context, so I'm not about to, uh, to start saying... I, I'm not about to step in and say, I can solve this from my point of ignorance, but it does sound like wallpapering over the cracks. Like he's, he's too, it's too painful to go back uh, to childhood things that would have kick-started negative patterns of behaviour. It's much easier to just, in the moment, identify a little problem and solve it and feel like you've made progress. But what happens then is that problem goes away. Next week, there's another problem. Next year, you're depressed again, and you have to go through the whole cognitive behavioural therapy process again of identifying what's going on right now and solving it and feeling good again and then you get depressed again because you're not actually going to the root of the problem, which can often come from childhood. And that is an idea of trauma that has, to me, that has nothing to do with war, nothing to do with threat of life and can exist. Sorry, I'm confused. Say say that. You're talking about... Normal traumas that affect people's adult behaviour that do not stem from war, car accidents, obvious life events like that. Um, oh. I'm talking about, for example, the parent that put too much pressure on the child to achieve in school or the, 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 the sibling who, was, who felt like they were the unfavoured one and that the other sibling got everything in life or whatever which you will, like that. Which you will know absolutely nothing about, of course. <laughs> Yes, of course. Because even if the, even child. if there
1: were others, you were still the favourite, right?
0: I noticed that's the moment you picked to be facetious. Interesting. Yeah.
1: <laughs> I found one of your. Um, I found one does, of. But does that make sense? What I just said. Yes, yes, it does make sense. But I think, and, uh, and and I know that my brother Dominic, if he was a, if he was our listener, would agree with me here. I think that the word trauma has been. Um, I uh, can't think of the right word.
0: Sullied by polite, neoliberal, middle-class people saying, I had trauma because I wasn't the best child. Yeah, and yes, yes, yes. And the, word... and the angry working-class Daily Express reader thinking, you don't know what trauma is, you haven't had your brother have to go off into, etc., and see war. Yeah, absolutely. I'm not sure why I'm... So there's a, cla- there's a class issue... No, not a class issue, no, no. Like no a, a class issue surrounding the, the linguistics of the word trauma.
1: I don't know that it's a class issue, it's a cultural issue, it's a media issue, it's a, um, it's a, a lessening, I think, uh, on some ways it's a really good thing, but a lessening... No, an, an ease of which we talk about difficult and distra- distressing events and I think the word trauma, like I said before, has a clinical and a cultural Meaning, or I don't think I did say cultural, like a social meaning of trauma. You know, like some might say, oh my God, it was totes traumatic. I had to wait like 40 minutes for the toilet and I almost wet myself. It was awful. I was looking around the place. It was awful. I was really going to... You know, I might say that that was a bit traumatic if I had to wait in a But, the, but that's queue. just a...
0: But that's just a small, largely incidental thing waiting for the toilet. That's an incident that happens in <clears> 40 minutes and it has consequences sort of within an hour and doesn't necessarily affect the rest of your life. No, absolutely, so I, I, absolutely. I, I, I do agree that we're, we need to distinguish two different things. I think there are two subjects here. I think there is one where there is grave danger and threat to life that is very extreme and causes an extreme traumatic reaction, and that is recognised in clinical practice with various definitions and things that you've talked about. And I think there is something else, which is people in adult life having behavioural problems that could be mild or that could be extreme, and it could make them just a little bit unhappy or anxious on a day-to-day basis, or it could make them severely depressed, and they don't necessarily appreciate the Freudian perspective of looking back into childhood to find the cause of the problems. They are more sympathetic, as was the example of John Ronson in this interview. They are more sympathetic with the more modern cognitive behavioural therapy process of, oh, I've got a problem, uh, let's address it. Oh, we've addressed that, we've solved the problem, we feel good about ourselves. Um, I think that there are lots of people who, have, uh, who, who get depressed or who simply just get a little bit unhappy with day-to-day life, and they have probably just inherited uh, problematic behaviour in childhood. And I can stop being so vague with my favourite subject, myself, and I can talk about things that I've tried to identify in childhood that have probably caused negative behaviour in adulthood for myself. But obviously, to, to start talking about that as trauma sounds like I'm belittling... And I'm trashing the idea of someone who goes to war and suffers real <clears> trauma. <throat> and I'm talking about my not real trauma, my slightly inconvenient footnote in a largely okay life in a time of peace. And it's, it sullies the word trauma. Well, so I think that's why I think we need two subjects.
1: Yes, yes, I, I agree. But but there is—that's what I mean. There's this kind of social or kind of like um, uh, cultural. Oh, it was traumatic. And then there's the clinical traumatic. But there is also, uh, the, 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 I'm, st- I'm saying there's a third one, there is also like a kind of a truth to it, there is like a kind of a biological. So the clinical would al- often fit into it, it would often fit into that. But also, if you don't meet certain criteria, then they, you know, the psychologist or psychiatrist wouldn't diagnose you with having, you know, post traumatic stress disorder or uh, traumatic neuroses. So, In the lovely 1966 edition of James Drever's A Dictionary of Psychology, which we've we've popped back to on a number of occasions, remembering this is the 1966 definition of trauma, I think it's quite a nice definition. Any injury, wound or shock, most frequently physical or structural, but also mental, in the form of an emotional shock, producing a disturbance, more or less enduring, of mental functions. So, actually... If you did want to be, you know, on that definition, if the person started in in Waitrose started having a severe panic reaction to the fact that they couldn't get the um, Lebanon couscous or whatever it was, then perhaps then it could be considered traumatic. But of course, it would then belittle the idea that you've seen your all of your friends' legs blown off in Iraq. You know, is it the same thing? I see. Most people would consider the quinoa issue uh, distress. And even then, it would be probably considered quite pathetic. But what was, what was the thinking behind it? You know, is, is, this, is, this, is, is this person's mother and father coming and they haven't seen them in 10 years and they're trying to put on a perfect meal? What's the meaning behind it? So I'd consider it distress rather than trauma. But in that moment, there was a severe emotional disturbance. So you could say, yeah, it is traumatic.
0: And whilst we're on the subject of nuances, <clears throat> I think that if anyone assumes that someone who's gone to war and has seen uh, violence is automatically a wonderful, elevated, heroic form of humanity, whilst the person who has a feels distressed because they couldn't get their, what they wanted in the supermarket must be scum who should be trashed for their pathetic life that is a very uh that's jumping to conclusions and being incredibly judgmental because of exactly what you said but i i want to t- i but b- because most people haven't been in war most people haven't necessarily seen uh near death tragedy or whatever it might be um i do want to talk about whatever it is trauma could be the word or maybe that's a totally distracting bad use of language and there needs to be another word but I, want... I just think you're
1: spot on with because I think um, I wanted you to go back to that. Were you talking about childhood distress? Because you were talking about childhood trauma. So there's definitely childhood trauma, which still, in my mind, we're sort of talking clinically, aren't we? There's the childhood trauma of abuse or neglect, and that generally is is definitely seen by almost everyone as a terrible, awful, life changing event. You know, trauma, neglect abuse, um, not being taken care of, loss of parents, you know, those kind of things that happen in childhood, they're seen as very difficult. But you were also talking earlier on about childhood distresses, disappointments
0: that affect your adult life. And And I also heard someone talking recently about how all... I can't remember who it was, but they were talking about how all parents, to some extent destroy the lives of their children and that's not intentional and they could have the best will in the world and they could read all the parenting books and all that sort of stuff and be a wonderful, peaceful, uh, mindful, yoga practising, whatever. They could try to be the perfect parent and they could still ruin their child's life by instilling disruptive behaviour in that child and not even realising it. And so what I'm talking about is um, people... In adult life who have problematic patterns of behaviour, I think often the solution is to look back into childhood. With a So this is a Freudian perspective on therapy rather than trying to think about what is it that's currently causing me problems. Oh, it's my job, I need to change jobs. Or, oh... I shouldn't be living with these people. It's making me depressed. I need to move into a new flat. Because you can move into a new flat, take your problems with you, still be depressed. They
1: fuck you up, your mum and dad. They may not mean to, but they do. They fill you with the faults they had and add some extra just for you. But they were fucked up in their turn by fools in old-style hats and coats who half the time were soppy-stern and half at one another's throats. Man hands on misery to man, it deepens like a coastal shelf. Get out as early as you can and don't have any kids yourself. Um, I mean, a lot of people will have learnt that at GCSE and I feel that that is exactly what you were talking about. So um, I know you started going on to something
0: else which I just couldn't even focus on. (laughs) So I I know the solution here. I'm going to let you speak for a bit and then we're going to wheel this around to me and i have no problem with talking about myself at the end of the podcast because people can just stop listening if they don't want to hear it they've had most of the goodness before that point
1: um, there's actually uh, an interesting um parallel with what you're saying in terms of uh working with working with trauma or distress uh, in a therapeutic way in that um in a cognitive behavioral way so some some conditions um And some therapy sessions, you might allow a person or give the person permission to, for 15 minutes, talk continuously about whatever it was they wanted in order to get that part out of the way. You know, just sit and listen to 15 minutes of distress in order to work on actual therapeutic techniques um, in a session. So that's kind of nice that perhaps we should give you 15 minutes at the end of each podcast. We can say goodbye and then you can just spend 15 minutes saying whatever it is about yourself that you want to.
0: (laughs) I I just... Um, I often find this listening back when I'm editing these podcasts. I am there's, there's always, in my head, everything I say, there's, uh, there's a... It's probably why I um so much, and I have to edit out so many ums usually. It's because everything... There's always a constant self-censorship of I don't want to sound like a person with no sense of reality, you don't, whatever that may you be. You don't want to sound like yourself. Exactly. The artiste in me finds it very difficult that we can... On the one hand, to talk about childhood events like being the sibling who was not favoured, which then causes you a life of bad patterns of behaviour. Like you might be antisocial, you might be obnoxious to work with, you might suffer from depression because of all of that. And you might not realise that it comes from childhood and it might take ages for you to until you eventually dive back into your childhood and realise what is the cause of your problems so that you can work on it. And then there's the other category of. Someone with let's call it real trauma because they and i don't I've made that sound facetious, but only because the term is facetious, but proper life threatening events with a clinical definition of this is trauma because you you nearly died, this is trauma because you watched someone actually die, and that is so different in experience to just having parents who unwittingly or wittingly did a bad job of parenting some or all of the time, which has caused you some mild inconvenience in later life, which means that you have to go through therapy. Right, yes. Let me, at that point,
1: stop you and try and try and focus on, I think, three uh, discrete areas that you've raised in a, you know, forgive me, in a somewhat jumbled way over the last 40 minutes. One was, I'm going to go right back, to, to To the first one that I think you mentioned one was sounded quite belittling about cognitive behavioral therapy versus psychoanalysis for uh for solving problems to have a long term effect so cbt versus s- psychoanalysis the second was uh uh parenting and childhood traumas and the the third one was trauma in itself and what that means in reality Um, and last week we were also talking about emotionally unstable uh, personality disorder also known as borderline personality disorder and we started to look at trauma then so we've got these three ideas so CBT versus psychoanalysis which should maybe come last and then also um, parenting and how traumas might develop although they might not be considered Life-threatening traumas it is something that destabilises someone emotionally. So this takes me to attachment theory. Do you know much about attachment theory? Not really, no. So there's this chap called Bowlby. Bowlby's Theory of Attachment, and it's about how... Uh, and, and this is not an area that I'm a I'm tall specialist in. It's just something that is always there in the background and you'll often be reminded of if you go to a clinical discussion or you talk to a psychologist or... um or you do any reading around psychology and and, uh, behavioural or developmental psychology. Attachment. Okay, so uh, work was done, I think, in the 1940s and 50s, perhaps a little bit earlier than that, looking at how babies attach and how babies respond and how babies grow in development in relation to their main caregiver. So usually the mother, but sometimes the mother and the father, sometimes the father, of course, sometimes an external figure, so so the main caregiver, and how a person's emotional, uh, psychological, cognitive, intellectual functioning develops in relation to how they were cared for in the first zero to 18 months, 18 months to three years, three to five years, five to eight years, up until the point where the child starts to develop their independence. Okay, So there are different forms of attachment, Um, different people use different terms, but there's something like a, let's go with a strong, healthy form of attachment, whereby you know that your main caregiver is going to look after your needs, but also going to give you the independence and the space to learn for yourself. There's like a loose or, um... Uh, you know, a delicate attachment, whereby you're not sure whether someone's going to come back and look after you when you need feeding, when you need changing, when you need reassurance, when you need to be looked after, and when you need to be taken care of. And then there's a there's an over attachment, almost like a like an extreme attachment, whereby the person who cares for you is seems so anxious and so worried and so concerned about you. You're never able to develop independently and that person over-cares for you almost, which which seems extreme, of course. It seems, it seems nonsense. So these three basic forms of attachment, and I'm sure that they'll have developed the word, so I, I, I'm i not really clear on what the, the most up-to-date words in this would be. So a healthy attachment would be whereby you've got to, you know, you know that you're going to be taken care of, and sometimes you might have to wait to be taken care of, but it's OK because things will be all right in the end. And if you imagine, that kind of attachment with your... With your caregiver um, and often it's like a physical attachment and an emotional attachment and an intellectual attachment it's about being spoken to and being recognized um the, the needs being looked out for and then taken care of so if you imagine a crying baby in the next room if the mother never never goes to it does the baby just you know just the, what happens to the baby if the mother never goes and changes its nappy or feeds it the baby dies, of course, right? If, a, if the mother is there instantly, a uh, second the baby cries, that means the baby potentially, if you extend that, learns that the second that you show distress, someone will be there and take care of you, you know? And then the baby who might have to wait a minute or two but cries and cries and then the mum goes and changes or feeds or looks after it or talks to it, you know, learns that sometimes you don't get exactly what you need immediately. Can you kind of yeah. start to imagine how then those internal worlds would develop, Yes. Okay, so what we might be looking at is that the person who was neglected, who didn't get the care they needed at all, would develop in a number of different ways due to that, what would be considered trauma, um, because potentially that baby could have died, of course, um, but didn't somehow. They either... And also,
0: if the, if the baby didn't die and the, the parent was ultimately always going to save the baby and prevent it from dying, we can also not judge that parent as... They, prob- they may have thought, I think the best way to bring up a child is to make sure that child doesn't believe that as soon as it screams, it gets care. And they may have just taken it too far and not realised where was healthy on the spectrum and they went too far in one direction...
1: Yeah, of course. I mean, I'm giving, like I said, three like really specific, um, uh, probably quite unrealistic examples. There's probably a total mixture with lots of parents, you know, in terms of how they are at the time. Obviously, a mother with postnatal depression would really struggle with that attachment with a baby, whereas a mother who is on her third child might have a completely different relationship with the third baby and caregiving to how they did with the first one, meaning all three children in the family... Could have completely different attachments with their parents um, so so yeah the, the, these are their categorizations that actually really aren 't as realistic as you would hope they are, but they 're quite accurate in terms of attachment theory um, uh, and actually, if you did google it, you can find some really actually quite distressing and upsetting um experiments that they did and there's lots of black and white um sort of film footage of them and they 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 show, you know, they remove parents from the babies and bring the babies back in. They put certain babies in daycare and they have certain babies with the mother a lot. They have mothers who will make eye contact and mothers who won't make eye contact and things like that. Touch, eye contact, comforting when crying, uh, basic needs met. Um, so, So there's lots of different elements is what I'm saying to these attachments but the basic theory is you've got you know a strong a weak or a healthy attachment something like that okay but it's about those 18 months and then two uh, then two to three years and three to five is about how the child is more likely more or less likely to develop mental health problems later on in life um, therefore in terms of childhood trauma or attachment trauma it, it probably is different to that kind of adult trauma that we were talking about in terms of fearing for your life in a very real way, in a very, uh, in, you know, uh, in a very external I am in danger kind of a way. But this is a much more about an internal world and being able to self-soothe is a phrase that we use a lot. If, as a child, you're allowed to cry, but you know eventually your mum will come, somehow you learn to self-soothe, you, you manage to calm yourself. And it could be, as a child, looking up at the, the um, thing that spins above <laughs> a child... <laughs>
0: What's the thing that spins above a child? As if I'm going to know the answer to that. You know. The thing that spins above a child. I know exactly what you mean. You're in the cot, you're looking up, and it's like a lullaby
1: merry go round. (laughs) you know the lullaby merry-go-round what the bloody hell is that called anyway it plays that little thing so like a baby might look up and go oh there's a sheep oh there's a cow oh it's making noises oh that's nice and they've soothed themselves by being in the moment oh they might look around the room and see the little clouds painted on the wall and you know that you know almost that kind of being in the moment and knowing that there's nice comforting soft things you can do self-soothing but then like if if a child hasn't had a strong enough firm enough attachment or is had such a loose attachment that they 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 have to always somehow protect and take care of themselves that will completely affect the way that you relate to others later on in life you know um or it's one of the factors that would you know do you are you completely self-reliant and all you you know you don't need anyone else in your life or do you love socializing but sometimes like to be on your own or do you desperately need people around you all the time and think about the different um psychological or d- uh, con- conflictual ideas you might have in your head if you desperately need people around you all the time and can't be on your own or if you really don't want to be around anyone at all because they're all unreliable or Somewhere in between where you like socialising, but you can also do with a bit of time on your own because actually it's fine to be on your own. Um, but then, yeah, we, we're talking about trauma and the, and the different conditions, and I just thought we should heart back a little bit to um,
0: attachment theory, also because it's so bloody interesting. Um, and that's the thing that I really want to talk <clears throat> about because I don't have any experience of wartime trauma. Probably most of the people listening don't either. And what we're talking about probably affects me and the person listening... Uh, whereas the real trauma of distress from violence and so on doesn't affect me or the person listening so unless I've got that completely wrong and most of our audience by I mean by which I mean you the the one listener is actually from an incredibly traumatized deprived deprived (laughs) underprivileged yes maybe our listener comes from an incredibly deprived background Uh, quite why they're still listening at this point they've got the patience of a saint if they've been putting up with me saying oh i'm james and these are my problems if that's who our listener is then they probably won't get anything from this but i'm guessing that the listener in order to get something from this we need to not dwell on wartime trauma we need to focus on what you've just been talking about attachment to a parent for example in childhood or a slightly more extreme example but within the same room the same house uh domestic violence i i I bring this up now because i made a whole episode about james four and i talked about trauma and then i just did that on a whim and then several weeks later i listened back to it and i also listened to various people talking about trauma and i Tried to understand much more than I than the, than the nothing <laughs> that was the case when I made that episode, and I found that episode really difficult to listen back to because I thought, oh, "Who's this idiot talking about something he doesn't understand?" And so there may be someone listening right now who thought that at the moment, "Who's this idiot listening to something he doesn't understand?" And yet somehow they're still with us. So thank you for correctly enduring.
1: <laughs> okay, I, I just wanna I just wanna ask you about that. What what are you? Because do you know what, James? I I, I constantly criticise you for um, a barrage of words and they're not listening to me, but I'm wondering whether I'm regularly guilty of that myself. You're bringing up something there. You're bringing up an episode we did about a friend of yours who um, you were having basically a, a strong, difficult disagreement with and in the episode you felt like you were really flippant about it when you listened back and you felt that you were misusing the word trauma because actually it wasn't traumatic, or or, or, what do you mean?
0: No, not at all. I I don't feel like I was misusing the word trauma because it wasn't traumatic. I think I had... I think it was... In in the whole process of trying to understand this, I think it was absolutely step one, and then I listened back to it many life lessons later and thought well done, James, you went and made an episode on day one, but I don't think that I was barking up the wrong tree uh, getting into the subject of trauma based on what happened, and that had nothing to do with war, which is why I'm interested in talking about Thingamese's theory of attachment. Um, And as a result of the idea of trauma being something that I had never understood, never thought about and thought had nothing to do with me, presenting itself in my life when I conveniently had the luxury of time to sit and think about it, I then dived into all of what I thought was my own problematic behaviour. So throughout January, whilst I was joking about living in paradise and sunshine and having wonderful food and palm trees, what I was actually using that time to do was sit in solitude on my own in a room with no friends, no social life, no income, nothing like that, no distraction, in other words, and just concentrate on everything that I thought was a problem with myself, problematic behaviour. So one thing I identified, uh, which I kind of brought up in the um, paranoia episode, was my resentment towards institutions. As an example of your attachment to your mother being
1: in your eyes as a younger person completely positive overwhelmingly putting you first you being considered to be the the key point and the most important person in the room and there's not really anything wrong with James you couldn't understand why they might see faults in you at an interview until you've over time reflected on it and realized that actually they're not just going to assume that just because you're James Hall and you're there that you're the person for the job, you actually have to perform in a way to impress them and to show them that you're the right person for the job, whereas actually your childhood development was... and Your adult development was coloured by your childhood experiences whereby you were the most important and already perfect.
0: That is most of it. I also think there's an influence from my slightly bizarre erratic childhood where I moved around and moved from school to school and never formed long lasting friendships so that also influenced this idea that I'm somehow different to everyone else and I don't fit in and it's because the institution doesn't allow me to fit in so I will never there's never a school where I will fit in and then that translates to there is never a university where I will fit in and that translates to there is never an institution where I will fit in and therefore I'm never going to get a job that I want so I have to just rot in disillusionment and feel depressed for the rest of my life and just hope that something comes along okay and I have had uh so for example my first job where I had well, I was well looked after and had my living costs paid and therefore was independent with a job, blah, 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 all the things that I've been trying to get, I feel like that was something I kind of fell into with some luck. Wherever I've had to compete with other people, I have been hopeless and I've come away disillusioned time and time again. And I, And that's not because all institutions are wrong, it's because I approached it Wrongly? Incorrectly? (laughs) Incorrectly. I think there are many, many, many root causes of why I've always found it difficult, seemingly impossible, thoroughly painful. I've always hated applying for jobs, hated going for interviews, not got the job felt disillusioned it's happened so many times okay okay Um, actually
1: let's just have a little look at that a minute because we're talking to the listener and so what what we're on an episode about trauma we've looked at childhood attachment we looked at that kind of we're now talking about what could only be i guess considered the the lower level ongoing effect of upbringing which might bring about day-to-day traumas, in, in inverted commas, rather than clinical traumas. And you're giving the example of applying for jobs and not getting them and what you're left with, the thoughts you're left with, the feelings you're left with... Feeling like the world is for everyone else, not for me. I'll never fit in. And, and OK, again, like, it's very difficult with you, James, to, to understand whether you are being just flippant and exaggerating um, or whether you really mean that. So when you say... What? How is that? So, so if you did you? When was your last time you applied for a
0: job you didn't get? I find it difficult to go anti chronologically. Um, so basically, when I can I answer that the other way around? So when I graduated, it was sixteen months I think before I got a job. Um, and in that time I applied for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of jobs and I was completely clueless and I went for interviews and I just didn't know what was going on and I didn't get the jobs and I didn't understand why and various negative patterns of behaviour ensued whereby I became sort of like an adult brat thinking oh it's not me it's you there must be uh, uh, all the institution and I, I don't mean to sorry if I'm seeming facetious again, but I blamed the institutions, not myself. I didn't see problems in myself. I saw problems in the outside world, so, and that was how I coped with it. So
1: you were in denial in many ways?
0: Absolutely. So w- when I'm asking
1: you, I guess almost to... I haven't said it, but I think in my mind, what I wanted you to do was focus on the feelings and the distress. Like, what what was that like? If you, but if you were in denial, you wouldn't
0: been feeling distressed? You'd have been feeling, what, angry? Or? Yes, no, it was, it, it was an extreme... Kind of drop extreme it was to I don't, <laughs> a mild, I don't, a mild. I, I, don't, yeah, I don't care to what extent it was yeah. established loneliness feeling like the world is for other people not for me I don't fit in <clears throat> I'm weird and different I don't know how to please other people I don't know how to give people what they want in an interview in a social situation I don't know how to go up to a person and show them that they can hire me and I can do their job. I simply don't know how to do that. I don't fit in. Other people can do it. They get all the opportunities in life because they're just the people who fit into the current system. The system doesn't work for me. I can't get into it. So I'm looking ahead to a lifetime of failure and not fitting in and loneliness. Would
1: you think that's incredibly... Would you think it's interesting? Gosh, we've got to stop going with these extremes that we incredibly extreme, totally, (laughs) all-encompassingly. Um that's very relatable. I think a lot of people listening would, you know, at one stage in their life, you know, I I feel like that's a perfect description of being a teenager.
0: You know, I don't fit in. Except for me, it happened when in my mid 20s. I do feel like I'm all the stages I've had are a lot later than most people tend to have these things. There's just one other thing that I want to say, and I don't know if now is a good time, we've gone over the hour mark, and I've got 17% battery on my laptop. But just to bring up, uh, a walloping great big thing and slap it on the table and maybe leave it for another time. Uh, my dad died when I was 16. I've mentioned this before. Um, he, I, he'd he already had a family, as in he was married and had two children who grew up um, and then he got divorced and then he met my mum and then I was born a whole generation later, which is why my, whatever you want to call it, sis, stepsister, stepbrother are a whole generation older than me. I've got, I'm an uncle or half-uncle to people older than me. Um, so my dad had been there, done that, and in his second go at bringing up a child, wait, me... when this is his second attempt. Fucking hell. <laughs> Whereas it was the first attempt of my mum, who was um, quite late, comparatively, having a child, having me. In that context, uh, my my dad had formed the opinion that children are perfect up until they're seven... And from that point onwards, they just become ruined and gradually become more and more of a disappointment as they go into adulthood. And the uh, the fact that I knew as a seven-year-old that, I was about, that, that he felt that way and that I was about to go into a period of disappointment to him must have had no end of consequence right up to the present day that I haven't even begun to work out that... I've certainly started to work out some ways in which I've probably constantly been trying to prove that, oh, actually, no, I'm not a disappointment. Wait, wait,
1: wait, 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 wait.
0: Why? He said that directly to you. James,
1: it's your sixth birthday today. In one year, precisely, to the day, you will become the beginning of a disappointment ever-expanding, filling... Any any void or any space in my life that could once have been filled Uh, with the joy of a child?
0: uh, Interruption request. Interruption request. Now you're being facetious about my dead father. No, I'm just going to. No, I'm I'm not
1: being facetious about your dead father. I'm giving a characterful um, rendition of potentially how your father would have put
0: his his potential disappointment to you as a young child. You call your pantomime whatever you want, but this is what <laughs> actually happened. He frequently said, in a supposedly jokey way, children are all adorable until they're seven and then they grow into horrible adults. It was sort of like a throwaway thing that wasn't meant to dis- to traumatise his child who was in the room listening to it. But I listened to it and I realised that there was a grain of truth to it. The, re- the reason it was funny, the reason that all the other adults in the room laughed when he said that, is because, on the one hand... It's a bit extreme. We all know it's not true. We all know that not every single human being is perfect until seven and then they gradually become rotten. But on the other hand, we all know that he, to some extent, does think that... He does think that children are innocent and pure and haven't been corrupted yet, and then they start having sex and taking drugs and... At seven? (laughs) I mean, maybe some do, but
1: wow. Wow. So you you've chosen
0: to make you chosen to you chosen to belittle this again. It's not,
1: I'm not belittling it. I'm I'm just remembering that there is a listener, and you know this. Po- if you wanted to say, "Oh, the podcast," it couldn't possibly, you know, you know, we couldn't change it too much because it's got such a fantastic format. Our format was that we do try and make light of some of the more difficult things at the same time as also giving it airtime to be able to talk about these things. You know, we're trying to destigmatize like, uh, these things, and actually, like, a little bit of playfulness goes a long way, James.
0: I've just got you to justify yourself, (laughs) which is great, because I think I've done too much of that myself, this podcast, but now you've balanced it out, I feel totally zen, and I'm going to count all the blue things in the room after we've recorded
1: OK, so so your dad used to say... And I think every one of us would be able to... Well, sorry, most of us, uh, most of the three of us, you, me and the listener, <laughs> would, you know, at least two of the three of us would be able to um, identify with that. And I think we all have phrases in our heads. I know that I've got some that my parents would say that, that, that completely coloured the way that I grew up, thinking that, you know, sowing the seed of me being
0: or developing into a bad person... Uh, uh, it's a cool, it became a core cool belief. My dad f- made me feel like I was perfect until the age of seven and then I started to become a disappointment and gradually the rot was going to set in. I started to make myself believe that I was going on a relentlessly upwards t- trajectory and everything was going to get better and I was going to prove him wrong. Disillusion became prevalent when I was suddenly independent and I left home and after university I had to try and get a job. And there I was thinking, on the one hand, having been brought up as an only child, with to some extent, the idea that I'm wonderful. And on the other hand, this idea that I had made myself wonderful, it wasn't just that I was an only child, it was because I had a parent who told me that I was going rotten. I decided, no, I'm not going to go rotten, I'm going to be wonderful. Uh, I spent 10 years making my own little magazine to show, look, I can edit a magazine, all these sorts of things. I thought, I'm ready to, to go out there in the world and be great. And I had no idea of empathy. The autiste in me found social interaction really difficult. The constantly moving schools and living in different countries when I was younger made it even more difficult for me to relate to people, have friendships, have lasting relationships with other people, and so on. So All that somehow came together to make me totally ill-equipped to go out there in the world as an independent person who could successfully get a job, make friends, have healthy relationships. So I was then constantly facing disillusionment because I tried to do things I thought I'd be able to do. I was totally incapable of doing them and was constantly applying for jobs that I didn't get, uh, was constantly confused by... Think times when I thought I could make friends with people and it didn't work out and all that sort of stuff and it's only now in my 30s that I've started to look back at the source of why I have various patterns of bad behaviour in adulthood as opposed to just thinking oh well at the moment I don't like my flat or I don't like my job I'm going to i'm going to solve my problems by moving i'm going to solve my problems by getting a new job i'm going to solve my problems by going on holiday because i'm too you know i need a break none of that works all of that is escape all of that is flight all of that is wallpapering over the cracks and i feel like only now going back into childhood trying to work out why i think the things i think why i behave the way i do why i don't get a job why i upset a friend why a relationship doesn't work, or whatever it is, going back to childhood to try and work out uh, some of the patterns of my adult behaviour, I find that really productive and useful, and more so than any previous flight, escapism, wallpapering over the cracks.
1: Yeah, OK. Um. Yeah, I... I from someone who has faith in the psychoanalytical school of therapy
0: um, I think that's, that's a, uh, that makes a lot of sense I, th- I certainly think coming to France was initially another just distraction how can I just escape my life I know, I'll go to another country but wherever I go I take myself with me and France was a big old distraction for several months because there's just so much novelty from the interrailing and the language school and living with a family and all that. And it was only really in January when I was just sat in a room on my own with no friends, no social life, no money coming in, nothing to do, that I actually had the luxury of the time to just sit on a chair, not talk to anyone, not go anywhere and just think. I, you know, I think what you've... Perfectly done, of course, in... you. <laughs>
1: in your In your very impressive way, although there 's a lot of garble during that thing is you 've taken us to i guess the next the next episode, which has got to be core beliefs, how we challenge them, deny them, or avoid them, and what can we do to become a more um, present person in our life as it really is, um, which all sounds very much like uh, a very positive topic to go on to from trauma what do you think to that James maybe next time
0: we look at core beliefs and who we are who we really it sounds wonderful and I have every faith in your divine omnipotence nurse Daniel P Brown okay well I think that was a pretty good wrap-up from you there so uh, I
1: guess all we've got to say is you know keep your comments questions and coming in on our twitter feed our facebook account our instagram account snap we definitely do, let's, snap Let's snapchat we,
0: us if you'd like we, uh, <laughs> we don't we do yeah. not have a twitter account do <laughs> not snapchat me because i don't want to receive snapchats from strangers by all means look up my uh brightly lit sun-kissed travel photos on instagram if you want to but if you don't like buildings and trees you'll find my account very boring And uh, find Dan on Facebook and give him lots of attention. Great. Okay, so that that summarises everything for this week. Thank you for listening to Trauma.
1: We will see you next time on Private Practice Podcast.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It's a wonderful story.